Hi friends, welcome to the Psyche Mental Wellbeing Podcast with me, your host, Hannah. On the show, I'm joined each episode by an amazing guest to have an honest conversation, share our real life experiences and tackle stigma and misconceptions around mental health along the way. We believe that everyone would benefit from focusing a little more on their mental well-being, and we're here to support you to do just that. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, friends, and happy Monday. Hope you've had a good weekend and that you're doing well this Monday morning. Um, I'm going to be keeping it short and sweet at the beginning and the end today. Uh, I'm really focusing on the conversation. Uh, so firstly, just massive thank you to Madeleine and Alex who joined us last week. Hope you enjoyed those episodes. And today we are joined by Cynthia. Uh, so let's dive in. I really hope you enjoy our conversation and I'll be back super quickly at the end. Hi, everyone, and I'm really happy to welcome today's guest, Cynthia, to the podcast. So, Cynthia, welcome, and if you could introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about you. Hi, Hannah. It's so wonderful to be here. I'm Cynthia, and I am a, uh, a cancer survivor, a, um, a former journalist, a former hospital executive, and now a patient advocate and author of a book called The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And, and so glad to have you here today to, to dive into this topic. And um, I guess the first question I like to ask people is how you kind of got to where you are now, how you kind of started on, on this path, if you like. You know, it's such an interesting story. Uh, life takes so many twists and turns. When I was young, I assumed that I was going to be a writer. Um, and somewhere along the way, I got off track. I ended up going to business school and being a management consultant for a number of years. And then eventually, went to work for one of my clients, uh, a hospital uh, here in New York City called Montefiore Medical Center. And um, after a handful of years there, I, uh, I resigned. I decided it was time to write the great American novel. And I uh, sat down to, uh, to write a book uh, only to uh, be diagnosed with cancer and went through uh, a very challenging um, period of time dealing with my own disease. And then um, ended up combining what I had learned as a journalist, what I had learned as a management consultant, um, and what I had learned as a hospital executive, in addition to what I learned as a cancer patient. I, I ended up interviewing over 100 um, uh, patients and all sorts of uh, medical experts and scientists and, um, and wrote a very different book than I imagined myself writing. Um, but it all came together because uh, I... Uh, I was able to take advantage of my years as a journalist um, to understand how to ask questions and, and pull out sensitive information from people who uh, weren't necessarily sure they wanted to tell their story. And I was able to um, uh, take advantage of my years as uh, being a management consultant and, and stepping into environments that I knew nothing about and finding the right experts to ask the right questions of um, in order to put together um, a story. And obviously able to take advantage of my knowledge of um, hospitals and medical systems in order to uh, find the right doctors to not only help me, but hopefully help others through the book. Yeah, it sounds like um, an amazing process and and, and book that you've um, that you've created. And I imagine, you know, that, that with cancer, it's such an emotional diagnosis and experience. And so that skill of being able to have those really... Uh, maybe difficult conversations with with people was 
don't know, maybe a challenge or something that had to be quite tactfully managed, I would imagine. Well, and it's, it's interesting because I didn't, um, I didn't know that I was going to write a book about cancer, um, but I was surprised at how emotional um, I was uh, during my cancer experience. And I was surprised by how little conversation there was about the emotional impact of a cancer diagnosis and the emotional effect of the cancer and the treatment and the medications and the radiation and everything that we were going through. And yet nobody was talking about it. And it was only, um, I was actually, I was at the gym and I was sitting on a bike. I was probably pedaling, you know, mile and a half an hour. <laughs> I was really pretty weak with the, in the middle of the treatment. And um, somebody that I'd seen at the gym a number of times, but never had a conversation with came and, and sat on the bike next to me and started telling me his cancer story. And he was talking about how um, afraid of dying he was. And I was thinking, hmm, I experienced that fear. And then he started talking about um, how isolated he felt with all of his emotions and how he felt like nobody could possibly understand what he was going through. And I was thinking, well, but I felt isolated and didn't think that anyone could possibly understand what I was going through. And then he started talking about his depression and, his, and all of these emotions. And it was like, oh my God, I went through the same thing. How is it that, you know, your cancer experience 15 years ago and my cancer experience today are so similar, even though our cancers are so different? Um, and why don't people know about this uh, going into it? And um, that's when I started talking with other friends initially and then cancer patients everywhere to try and piece together this story and to try and sort of raise awareness of the fact that it's not a weakness that we are feeling emotional, but rather that is an expected part of the process. And doctors don't talk about it for lots of complicated reasons, but it's, it's there. It's as predictable as pain in your leg if you break your leg. You know, you're going to have an emotional response to this, to this disease. So rather than thinking of it as being um, a sign of weakness or um, something we need to keep to ourselves. It should be something that we talk about as freely as we talk about that pain in our broken leg. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as you were, you were talking about some of those kind of shared emotional experiences, I think that isolation in particular, when we have an experience and it, and it brings up all these powerful emotions. And if we don't talk about it kind of on a societal level, that that's part of the process, then we think, what's wrong with me? Like, why is it just me? Because we're not open about, about this stuff. Um, so I'd, I'd love it if you could share some of, and I know you mentioned a couple of those shared experiences, but what you found having all these conversations, is there a kind of clear story that, that most people will go through? What are the kind of common emotional experiences? Yeah, I think that there are some very, um, very typical experiences. Now, of course, we are all different. And so we all experience cancer differently. We all have different emotional um, makeups based on our genetics, our um, personal histories. Um, people who have experienced trauma have a very different way of responding to their emotions than people who have been lucky enough to go through life without some sort of trauma. Um, and not only do we experience things differently, but we express our emotions differently. So my way of dealing with depression may look very different than somebody else's way of, of um, acknowledging and, and communicating their, uh, their depression. But there were some very, clear, um, some very clear trends. And it starts with anxiety and fear. Um, and that anxiety and fear uh, really um, stay with cancer patients throughout the experience. And 
the experience starts the first time somebody um, begins to mention the word uh, cancer or, or growth or tumor or you know something that suggests that there's something going on in your body and continues well past the end of treatment. Um, and so fear and anxiety sort of go up and down throughout the process. But um, we also have an incredible amount of stress at the time of um, the diagnosis because uh, we know that our lives are about to be upended and there are so much that needs to be figured out. So much about, you know, who do we entrust our care to? How are we going to keep life going um, while we're being cared for? Um, how is the family going to manage? How, who do I tell what to? How do I deal with my job? So there's just incredible amount of stress. Um, at some point, all of that stress and anxiety uh, has to shift into a high pressure, high efficiency, get these decisions made and start the process. Um, so that, that stress actually sort of helps to funnel us into making some decisions. And then we start treatment. And at the start of treatment, there's um, a tremendous increase in fear because of all that is unknown about um, what the treatment is going to hold, um, both what, what's the treatment going to feel like, but then is it in fact going to work for us? As um, treatment uh, goes on, we begin to experience fatigue, some cognitive fuzziness, some loss of sense of self, um, some confusion, uh, some giving over of control of our lives. Um, and for some people, then that slips into a period of depression um, and, and significant cognitive impairment um, as the, the treatment uh, really sort of overwhelms the system. Um, there is a, an emotion that many people experience that we refer to um, as uh, scanxiety, um, where there's just tremendous um, fear and almost a, a PTSD-like reaction to having another medical test or another scan. Uh, what is it going to show? Um, and, and even if you know, nothing has changed from the day before the test to the day after the test, that period of time right around the testing is, is just filled with, uh, with heightened anxiety. If uh, people are lucky enough to end treatment and have no evidence of disease, eventually um, there is you know, physical recovery and then emotional recovery, but um, it takes a very long time uh, before we establish that recovery. And often there is a tremendous sense of loss when we're finally cut free from the medical, uh, medical community. And that loss is really twofold. One is I'm no longer being watched over on a daily basis by my medical team. So what if there's something wrong still? What if the cancer comes back? But two is, is there's sort of an assumption that, okay, you're done now, get back to living your life. But of course you're not done. Not only has your body not had a chance to heal yet and your emotions certainly haven't had a chance to heal yet, but you're nowhere near ready to go back to what your life used to be. You don't even know what your life can be going forward. And yet many people assume you're done and therefore the extra support sort of begins to disappear. The um, assumptions about what you can and can't do um, uh, begin to increase. And so you're at this tremendous point of inflection where you don't know, what, you know what's going on yet. And yet the expectations have returned. Um, if you are unfortunate enough to have a recurrence or a progression of your disease, um, for many people, this is when the emotions really go haywire because you have tremendous fear and anxiety about what this means for you. Um, 
And you also have a, a heightened sense of um, often anger at the disease or at your medical care team or at, at life and at, at God, at, at whatever it is that you're angry at for, um, uh, for the situation you find yourself in. Tremendous sense of hopelessness and helplessness that, you know, here I am, I am going to die and how do I deal with this? And then often there's a difference between what you as a patient are experiencing and what your, your loved ones and family members and, and loving caregivers might be assuming you're feeling. And so that, that, um, that distance can often grow um, when there's a, uh, a recurrence or a progression. And if a patient is um, uh, in the, the last months of their life, then they go through a tremendous amount of grief and uh, loss before they actually get to um, most often a, a sense of acceptance and a, um, a, uh, a calm with the idea that, uh, that cancer has led to their, uh, to their death. So very predictable emotions. As I say, not everybody experiences the same thing. Not everyone expresses those emotions in the same way, um, but those are typical emotions. And um, you know, something like 70% of cancer patients experience uh, stress, anxiety, um, and, uh, and fatigue. Um, so they are, they are common. Um, PTSD um, is, uh, is a lot less common. It's um, you know, in, the, in the teens uh, as opposed to 70%, but um, depression is, uh, is typical in about uh, 40% of cancer patients. Um, so we know that cancer has uh, an emotional impact on people and for very specific reasons as well. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, and I was thinking actually, as you were saying, with the, um, as people are coming to the end of their treatments, kind of in, in whichever uh, way that the kind of news goes and the, their journey then goes about the assumptions of other people of what they think that that person is going through or, well, like you said, like you're fine now. So expecting, you know, them to kind of get back to it. And um, I'm going to come back to, you know, if um, anyone's listening who is a patient themselves and what they can do and just, if you're someone who a loved one or a family member, friend, anyone you know is experiencing cancer, what's the kind of, um, you know, I was going to say best, but probably not the best, but the most kind of compassionate and caring way of supporting them? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think one of the hardest things about cancer is because there is such a stigma around the emotional health aspects of life in general, um, and there's a stigma around cancer, we really don't talk about cancer emotions. And so more often than not, the cancer patient is going to be withholding some of their, um, their thoughts about cancer from even their closest uh, loved ones. Um, and often that is um, a fear and fear of uh, mortality, a fear of recurrence, a fear of cancer becoming the definition of their life, um, the, the defining element in their life. Um, and the patient withholds in part because they don't want to upset um, the family members and uh, also withholds in part because of um, sharing that emotion means owning that emotion. And sometimes we can keep ourselves at a distance from that fear by not actually communicating about it. So it's a very self-protective thing, but it's also a, um, a, a protective um, measure uh, for the loved ones around us. Um, and so I think as a loving caregiver, 
if you assume that your, um, your patient is more fearful, has kept secrets from you, has more emotions than, than he or she is letting on around this, and sort of step gingerly around to say, I'm here for you, I love you, and will take care of you no matter what. Um, no matter what you need, no matter what happens, I'm here for you. Um, and that allows the patient to feel what it is they need to feel. And I think so often um, we put expectations on um, patients in general, but cancer patients in particular, to stay positive, to be upbeat, to, you know, don't worry until you have to worry and things like that. But but those statements sort of deny the 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 very feelings that the patient is, is experiencing. And it helps to sort of validate the experience, um, not to dictate it, not to say, oh, I'm sure you're feeling X, Y, and Z, but to say, you know, it's okay if you wanna cry. It's okay if you're feeling scared. Um, I think in your shoes, I would be very scared right now. Are you, are you scared? Um, so that you allow the patient to, um, acknowledge to his or herself what they're feeling and then are supportive of that, uh, of that experience. And it's a very fine balance because you don't want to encourage someone to be depressed if they're not already depressed. And you don't want to increase somebody's burden by making them feel like they have to be positive when they're not feeling positive. Um, so you have to really listen and sort of be there for the patient. One patient I uh, spoke with for the book uh, said, I just want somebody to hold space. Just be open to whatever it is um, I need at that particular moment. And of course, our emotions fluctuate from, you know, minute to minute, day to day. And what uh, is needed one day um, may not be what's needed the next day. So it, it requires that people not only show up, but pay attention and listen and um, be willing to be supportive of whatever it is the cancer patient might need. I think there's something so powerful in that just being there, listening, holding space, not making assumptions that probably in all areas of life we benefit from having a bit more of. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so then if there's anyone listening who is having their own cancer experience, is there anything that you would kind of say to them about the kind of emotional experience they're going through? Yeah, I think it's really important to, to remember that so many of us do walk through life alone. Um, and yet there are tremendous resources available for uh, cancer patients um, to be matched up with a peer mentor who can actually help you go through your cancer experience, however, you know, remotely or distantly um, uh, they, may, uh, they may be. One of the things I do as a, um, as a patient advocate now is serve as a peer mentor to a number of cancer patients, some of whom I will never meet, um, some of whom I've been fortunate enough to, you know, to hug. But as somebody who has been through the experience, I'm uh, able to help you know, guide somebody who is newly uh, entering the experience and to assure them that, yep, that's perfectly normal. And, you know, this is what worked for me. It might not work for you, but here are some ideas. And that sort of uh, resource is available um, through a number of, of services. Here in the States, we have something called Immerman Angels. And they will match a, a patient based on age and interest and cancer type and prognosis. And 
you get to speak with somebody who's been through the same thing. Um, I know that there are a variety of um, support services like that everywhere in the world. And it's a question of reaching out. It's a question uh, as a patient of recognizing that you need support, that it is okay to, uh, to ask for support um, and uh, knowing how to find it. Um, so I encourage people to do that because we, again, we are so closed mouthed about our emotions, but recognizing that cancer is an emotional diagnosis and that it's okay to need support sort of allows you to start that process of finding the support that's right for you. Yeah, thank you so much. So powerful and such I guess it speaks that like not feeling alone that you've got someone there who maybe if you feel that around family there is that kind of holding back because not wanting to upset people and there's someone who isn't connected to you in the same way but they already have that kind of frame of reference of having been through something and um, I think peer support is just a fab resource in, in so many areas. Yeah I think a lot of people are hesitant to join a support group because they're afraid that by joining that support group, they are opening themselves up to hearing other people express their you know, depression or their um, negative experiences with cancer. But talking to a, a one-on-one peer mentor is different because that, that peer mentor in most cases has completed the process and is able to look back on the process in a way that can therefore be a guide or a benefit to you as opposed to um, everybody sort of being in it uh, together and experiencing everybody else's pain on top of yours. So it, it, it's, um, I think, a very uh, a very helpful resource that I wish I had known about when I was um, a cancer patient, but uh, I, I, was not, uh, I was not so fortunate. So I, I do try to spread the word about peer mentoring. I think it's a fabulous resource for all of us. Yeah, I do some peer mentoring uh, in the mental health Uh, Mm -hmm. field and and I think with that uh, I imagine it's similar there was some mentor training initially about the process and so yes you can kind of share some of the things that are beneficial but it's always keeping that person at the center so it's not kind of going completely into I'm going to tell you all about all of my stuff (laughs) just because you want to share and so yeah I guess it you know some of those concerns are um, kind of staved off. I'd love to know if you've got any thoughts of what we could do, you know, what you'd like to see different on a kind of societal level, or if you could change anything, what, um, what that would be. Well, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that I wish that we could do is go back to a more integrated um, medical uh, care system. I mean, I think, you know, uh, a, a big problem in modern medicine is that the doctors have become so specialized. And of course, that's, that's a problem in some ways, but it's, you know, tremendous benefit to us all that we have these experts. But um, because we've become so, so narrow in our focus, we often um, don't look at the patient as a whole. Um, And I think that in general, mental health and physical health are not at all integrated. Um, And I think that many doctors are not trained and therefore not comfortable uh, discussing mental health issues. And so um, mental health issues are often um, often overlooked. Um, and yet there's such a direct connection between our physical health and our mental health. At the time of, of a diagnosis, there are already um, chemical changes going on in the body that influence the way uh, we experience uh, ourselves. Um, and, and those chemical changes continue with surgery, with chemo, with uh, radiation therapy, with um, uh, many immunotherapies. 
not to get too technical, but uh, in our uh, immune systems, there are a, protein, a class of proteins called cytokines. And cytokines are uh, communicators um, within the immune system. Um, and there are pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines that need to sort of stay in balance. Um, but if you get a paper cut, pro-inflammatory cytokines uh, rush to the site and they tell um, the white blood cells to, you know, hurry up and get over here and deliver some platelets and let's seal up this wound. And oh, by the way, we need some, um, uh, we need to fight off infection. Let's get some other white blood cells over here and fight off that infection. And, you know, you'll notice that, you know, your paper cut is a little red and inflamed. And that's because of the pro-inflammatory cytokines that are there. And then as it begins to heal, the anti-inflammatory cytokines um, come to the area and they say, you know, come on, platelets, let's get out of there. Let's, you know, remove this extra uh, moisture and fluid and redness and, um, and get things back in balance. Well, so if all of that is going on when you have a paper cut, imagine what happens when you have massive surgery. Imagine what happens when um, cancer cells are, are killed off because of chemotherapy. Imagine what happens when um, the lining of your intestine is killed off because of chemotherapy. Imagine what happens when, um, you know, radiation and, and in fact, many Many immunotherapies are actually cytokine therapies. So our bodies are overwhelmed with pro-inflammatory cytokines throughout the cancer process. And those um, pro-inflammatory cytokines actually manage to uh, influence brain chemistry. And it's um, that massive influx in, of pro-inflammatory cytokines that drives a lot of what um, uh, neuroscientists refer to as sickness behavior where all we wanna do is climb back under the covers, pull the blankets up over our heads and, and hang out. And that's not a very helpful response, but it is a natural response. And some of what we need to do to encourage sort of the rebalancing of our cytokines are things that are so hard for us to do when we have cancer and when we're undergoing treatment, like getting up and going for a walk. Um, it's, it's the last thing that we would think to do, and yet it is the thing that helps us regain that, that balance. But if you go see your, um, your oncologist, they're not gonna have a conversation with you about cytokines. They're not gonna have a conversation with you about why you're feeling depressed, or not even going to likely ask you if you're feeling depressed, because it's not, it's not part of their protocol to ask about that. And so as a patient, you have to sort of advocate for yourself and say, I'm feeling depressed or this medication is really influencing my emotions. How can I deal with that? Um, most cancer centers and, and hospitals have supportive care. Sometimes they call it palliative care. Sometimes they call it psychosocial support. Sometimes they just call it supportive care. They have social workers and um, support groups and psychiatrists and ways of supporting the patient, but more often than not, it's up to the patient to ask for that support as opposed to it being offered. And I would love to see that change. I would love to see that, you know, one when one gets a cancer diagnosis, one is handed a piece of paper, not, not verbally told, but handed a piece of paper that one can take home and read later that says, you are likely to feel emotional. Um, here's why you're likely to feel emotional. Here's what to do about it. And here are all the supports that we can, um, that we offer in order to help you. And it, it's important that it be on a piece of paper rather than being told because at the time you hear those words, 
you've got cancer, your brain shuts down. You go into high uh, stress mode. Um, the fight or flight syndrome takes over. And the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that is rational and reasoning and able to um, process all of this information sort of shuts down. And we go into, oh my God, I've got cancer mode. Let's run away from this, um, from this dreadful uh, diagnosis. And we're not able to absorb that information. So 95% of what we are told um, in the first meeting with the doctor that says you have cancer doesn't get absorbed. <laughs> so don't give it to me orally, give it to me on a piece of paper so I can walk home with it. And after I've had a chance to digest my news, um, begin to look at it and understand it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I imagine even if you'd taken someone with you, when they hear that word, their brain's gonna go into the, <laughs> you know, they're gonna well, switch up as well, yeah. That is so true. You know, they always say, have a loved one, you know, with you for all of your appointments, but a loved one is going to be just as affected emotionally as, as you are. So sometimes it's better to have, um, you know, a, an unaffiliated navigator who can, who can listen coolly and hear. And, um, and in fact, I actually encourage patients to, um, you know, ask the doctor if it's okay if I record this conversation so that I can truly hear you uh, later um, and, and review what you've told me. Uh, it's, it's very hard to listen and hear um, what the doctor is saying when you hear those words, you've got cancer. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for everything you've shared. And before I ask you my set questions, I wonder if you've got a, a final thought that you'd like to share with us. Oh, well, I think that the, the most important thing is to recognize that um, uh, the emotions one feels around cancer um, are not indicative of a sign of weakness, but rather are uh, an expected and predictable part of the cancer experience. And just because it's not talked about as such doesn't make it any less so. Um, and so I encourage patients everywhere to acknowledge their emotions. Um, you know, if, if you broke your leg uh, and it hurt, you would say to the doctor, my leg hurts. Um, if you'd been in a cast for six weeks and it, your leg itched because you hadn't been able to uh, deal with the, uh, the skin that's dying underneath that, uh, that cast, you would say to the doctor, my leg itches. There's a variety of different emotions that come up during the cancer experience, but we've been told from the time we're young, keep a stiff upper lip, you know, be brave, be strong. And sometimes that's not uh, an effective way of, of coping. Um, and we all do have different ways of coping. And for some people, denial and putting up a, a brave front works because it allows us to stay removed enough uh, from our emotions so that we're not overwhelmed by them. But it's important to recognize that, that those emotions are valid um, and that you have a, a right to not only feel them, but to express them in a way that, uh, that's appropriate for you. And you have a right to be supported in those emotions, both by um, your, your family and friends, but equally importantly, by your medical community. Um, and advocating for yourself is how you're going to get that support. Um, it's, not, it's not going to come flying at you without you um, letting people know that you need it. Um, so feel free to, to tell people what it is you need. Um, you know, I think, I think we often assume that just as in fairy tales, the prince always knows what to, uh, what to give the princess in order to make her happy, or that, you know, in a, a romance on, uh, on TV, you know, the guy always knows what to give the girl for uh, her birthday or anniversary. 
doesn't always work that way in life. You have to let people know, this is what I like. This is not what I like. This is what I need. This is not what I need. And um, as patients, we have to do that too. It would be wonderful to think that um, our doctors and our loved ones can intuit exactly what we need. But if we don't tell them what we're feeling, if we don't tell them what our emotions are, uh, it's uh, very challenging for them to know how to support us. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on my set questions that I ask everyone that comes on. Um, and so my first one is what brings you joy in your life? Uh, what brings me joy? It is my family, without a doubt, <laughs> my family. We, um, we had dinner last night with my son and my daughter. Um, they're 28 and 30 and, uh, and my husband and I, and it was just, you know, wonderful to be together. So definitely my family. Yeah, awesome. And then my next one is what makes life meaningful for you? You know, that's a really interesting question. I think um, seeing other people grow, seeing other people flourish. Um, and certainly that was uh, the case as I uh, raised my children, but also, you know, working at the hospital, um, building a team of bright and successful uh, people, watching them flourish. Now working as a, as a peer mentor, seeing my patients um, uh, get through the cancer experience and then flourish on the other end. So I, I do think for me, it's all about helping others to, um, uh, to grow and, and flourish in their lives. Awesome. And then my next two are around our overarching topic on the podcast, which is mental well-being. Um, so the first one is what does mental wellness or mental well-being mean to you? You know, that's a really interesting question because I think that you know, it would be very easy to say, oh, you know, to be happy every day. But Happy every day isn't mental well-being. Mental well-being is being open to uh, and honest about um, the emotions that you're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis and recognizing that um, life has its ups and downs, that there are things that we can control and things that we can't control. And um, being uh, sound in our approach to sort of understanding the difference and knowing when to try harder and when to let go and when to push, when to, um, when to receive. Um, uh, so um, yeah, being able to find a balance in life, I guess, is, is what mental well-being is all about. And so my follow-up is always for yourself, what you do to manage your own mental well-being. So how you keep that balance for yourself? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, uh, exercise is a key part of that, um, being outside and in nature, uh, a key part of that. Um, you know, when I was going through, uh, cancer, my doctor used to refer to me as, uh, one badass cancer patient, but that badass attitude was only there because I would cry every morning in the shower <laughs> and then I would go for a walk or a run if I had, uh, had energy. So I could get both the the release of the tears, the, um, the physical uh, well-being of, um, you know, being outside and, and getting some endorphins running, uh, going, and then um, uh, laughter and love, hugs, um, you know, again, another great source of uh, chemical change, um, get those uh, uh, positive emotions going. So uh, for me, it, it really is about family and the love and joy that comes from family, um, being physically uh, active and, and engaged and being honest with my emotions and letting them come out. And sometimes that means I have to rage. Sometimes that means I have to cry. Sometimes more often than not, it means I have to laugh. Yeah, thank you. And my next question is sometimes a challenge. 
so we'll see. Uh, how would you describe your own mindset? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think my own mindset is generally optimistic um, and, uh, you know, generally positive. Um, but I think realistic, too, in that, you know, when I look at the world today, there's a lot around me that makes me unhappy and could make me uh, depressed. So I like to look at that, but then look at my own little world. Um, and in my own little world, I don't know, there's a saying, I'm not quite sure where it came from. Um, a mother is only as um, happy as her least unhappy child. Um, you know, so again, taking it back to the family, I I look around my family and um, in my family, we are happy, we are blessed, we are thriving. And so therefore, even though the world is not what I would want it to be, if I can make my own inner world uh, what I want it to be, then that's okay. Lovely, thank you. And so the next question is my, one of my favorite ones to ask because I'm really curious. Um, and so we like to leave the listeners with uh, between one and three top tips of things that they could try out that could have um, a massive impact in their life. And obviously we know we're all individuals, so it's just kind of throwing some ideas out there that people can, can try out. Um, but do you have a top one to three tips for us? Well, I do think that um, we do all have our own ways of coping with life and, and dealing with adversity, which of course we all, we all face. I think the, the top thing that I would recommend is, is finding something, some way to laugh every day, because I just think that laughter is so important. I mean, not only does it you know, stimulate all sorts of positive chemical releases in the brain, but it just feels good. Um, and so whether it's you know, laughing at a you know, stupid uh, cat video, or it's um, a deep belly laugh at a, uh, I don't know, a TV show, or tickling uh, a child, or um, watching uh, your own pet. Um, I think the, the the act of laughing uh, is just so important, and um, you know, a, a true belly laugh, not a uh, not a groan at a bad pun. Um, so, I encourage people to find something every day to laugh about. I do also think that being outdoors and in the sunshine just makes one feel good. And um, there are certain months um, wherever you live where that is just a challenge, but <laughs> to the extent possible, I encourage people to, uh, to get outside every day, no matter how, how bad you feel about life. Just go for a walk. Uh, it definitely helps. And um, a third uh, uh, coping mechanism for me is definitely music. Music has a tremendous um, influence on how I am feeling. And sometimes when I am feeling depressed, I will seek out depressing music so that I can sort of absolve myself of that depression. Um, you know, if I, uh, if I need energy, I'll, I can put on you know, high energy music and that can uh, get me moving. Um, sometimes I just really wanna hear a soulful symphony and, and that'll take me to a place of peace. Other times, I want, you know, high energy dance music, but I can use music to both complement how I'm feeling or change how I'm feeling. And I, I think music is a tremendous resource that is just underutilized in the, um, uh, in the healing process. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a playlist called Sad. <laughs> um, and it's got, but because sometimes, yeah, like you said, you're, you're feeling it and it, I, I think it's a way of maybe letting you express it a little bit to really be in it. And then the words, it's like, yeah, that's how I'm, how do they know how I'm how did they know? How did they know? Yeah. 
at least a decade, my soundtrack was some of the most depressing music ever. And now I listen to it, it's like, oh my God, I must have been really depressed when I was a teenager. I um, When I was a sort of, a, you know, teenager, young adult, it was like the kind of emo, like punk rock kind of thing. And actually it's still a lot of that is in my usual rotation actually but it's very much yeah captures all those emotions and but I also yeah. have like a kitchen dance party playlist for when you want to like, <laughs> dance party I like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so my my next question is um and, and we'll mention your book again at, at the end um but I love to read you can't see all of my <laughs> mountains of books around me uh, so I'm asking guests that come on if there's a, a book or maybe a TED talk or something that's been really impactful in your life that you'd like to share with us oh that's interesting um well when I think about the books that I go back to time and again um there's um one piece of escapist literature that I love uh Mark Helprin's um uh, the Winter's Tale, which takes place in New York City over multiple centuries and multiple, you know, realism, fantasy, whatever. Fabulous book. Um, it's it just, uh, as I said, escapism and um, uh, a better a better reality at times. So definitely uh, that book. Um, when I think of more meaningful titles, I got nothing for you. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Escapism's good. <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> awesome and it's uh, I love it and I I've not read that one and I always like book recommendations so when people say one that I've read I'm like yes I love that one but when it's a new one like oh add that mm -hmm. to my list and check that one yeah. out um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome and then that brings us to our, our my final question which is where people can connect with you where they can find you online if you can remind us of the details of your book as well that'd be fab so um, online, you can find me at thebigordeal.com. And a lot of the patient stories that became part of the book and many of the, the, the insights that I uh, gained through my research are available there for free for anyone to read at thebigordeal.com. Um, the book, um, which you can purchase, there's a link on the website to, uh, to take you to uh, purchase it, and it's available at bookstores everywhere, is called The Big Ordeal understanding and managing the psychological turmoil of cancer. Um, you can also find me on Twitter um, at The Big Ordeal and on Instagram um, and Facebook, uh, cancer.thebigordeal. So somewhat consistent. And I'm always happy to hear from um, listeners, cancer patients, cancer caregivers, Cynthia at thebigordeal.com. Um, so um, please do feel free to reach out to me. Um, I love hearing people's cancer stories. And, um, you know, as, as I said, there are a number of stories on the website uh, from the book, but also I continue to collect cancer stories. And if you would like to share your story with me, please do reach out um, as a cancer patient or as a cancer caregiver. Um, any connection you might have to the cancer world, I, I would love to hear your story. So Cynthia at thebigordeal.com. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us today and sharing uh, everything that you've shared so graciously with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Hannah. And thank you so much for having me as part of your show. You're welcome. So massive thank you to Cynthia again for joining us uh, and for sharing with us. As I said, keeping it short and sweet today. So Wednesday, I'll be 
popping in with a solo episode talking about weddings and reflections, but about a lot of stuff about people pleasing, perfectionism, authenticity, uh, lessons learned, family, all kinds of uh, observations. So it'll be a shorter episode, but a solo episode. So um, I hope you join us for that. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. And as always, please do rate, review and share if you've joined, if you've enjoyed the episode. Uh, as it helps us to reach more people and yes see you Wednesday until then as always take care of yourself be kind to yourself and I'll speak to you soon bye for now